Hello there, and a Merry Christmas one and all. My name is Alice, and you are listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places, and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents, and wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. You can show your support by spreading the word about the show, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me, with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or by emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk. Now, let's get on with our special Christmas edition of the show. Now, here is some sound advice from Mr. Mark Noakes, chairman of the Doncaster Magistrates, when they rejected the application of the licensees the district for an extension of hours from 10 to 11pm on Saturday, Christmas Eve and New Year's Day in 1934. A man can get sufficient drink between 6 and 10pm. He should be home with his family by 10 o'clock on Christmas time and not sitting in a pub if there is to be any Christmas at all. Wise words indeed, Mr Noakes. Now, are you aware that Ukrainian Christmas tree decorations often include an artificial spider and web because they believe a spider web found on Christmas morning brings good luck? And also, Japanese people traditionally eat a KFC for Christmas dinner. Although the percentage of Christian people in Japan is close to zero, every Christmas kids and grown-ups head to the closest KFC to enjoy some fried chicken, the closest food to turkey that you can get in Japan. It's all thanks to a successful Kentucky for Christmas marketing campaign in 1947. First aimed at foreigners, KFC offered a Christmas dinner that contained chicken and wine, a meal that remotely resembled the food expats and tourists had at home. After a huge success, Kentucky Fried Chicken started promoting this offer every year until the fast food chain became strongly associated with the holiday season. Now here's a lovely story. Back in the 1860s, there was a Christmas tradition in Westbury that would start on St Thomas's Day, the 21st of December. Many of the old people would go out soon after breakfast, carrying good-sized baskets, intent upon visiting the homes of the well-to-do to offer their respectful good wishes for a happy Christmas. This was known as going gooding. Those visited reciprocated and also gave money, groceries, cold tickets and sundry other useful items. And many a poor soul returned home laden and tired from their gooding expedition, but satisfied and happy in added possessions, which were a boon indeed to them. For many were reliant upon their weekly allowances from the parish of two shillings six and two four-pound loaves. But it was on Christmas Eve, from five o'clock to next morning, that saw Westbury differ to any other night of the year, for the locals seemed to exchange their beds for the streets, which were thronged by well-behaved crowds. 
The rifle band played a selection of music all the night through and really good caroling was to be heard everywhere. Indoors, nearly everyone was burning a Christmas candle and a good-sized one of wax. In most homes, a tallow candle was used, but this particular candle was either given by the grocer with a Christmas box or had been brought. The church was well attended at all three services on Christmas Day and in the afternoon, the event was the Daddy Christmases, led by the Daddy, followed by St George, the Turkish Knight, a doctor with numerous attendants who gave the old-time play and whose dresses were fearful and wondrous things. The doctor spread the sack for the many slain to die on, not to soil them on the muddy road. It was thrilling to a degree, and when only Daddy Christmas, St George and the Doctor were left alive, which was lucky, as by a happy use of magic medicine, he restored life to all again, and they sang together a lovely song. No one really knew where this custom came from, that made Westbury so unlike itself. Not going to bed was felt as a law and had to be observed on that night. The candles were understandable as a set-off to the holly, but it was really what had survived the old custom, Midnight Mass, which is still celebrated throughout churches in the world with the pomp and circumstance, which for many makes Christmas very, very real. Now, here's a little tidbit of information for you. When asked who has had the most number ones for Christmas, I would have said Cliff Richard, but I'd be wrong. It was, in fact, the Beatles who had four, with three consecutive number ones from 1963 to 1965. The first was I Want to Hold Your Hand, the second I Feel Fine, and the third Day Tripper, We Can Work It Out. Not long after, they bagged a fourth, Hello Goodbye, in 1967. Cliff Richard had three, and the Spice Girls also had three. Word of the Week And seeing as it's the festive season, your Word of the Week is... Yule Shard. Now, as another word for the festive period, Yule comes via Old English from Jol, an ancient Scandinavian word for a series of end-of-year festivities. A Yule Shard, also called a Yule Jade, Jade being an insult once upon a time, is someone who leaves a lot of work still to be done on Christmas Eve night. Now, without a doubt, this is one of my favourite Christmas stories that I found. It's from 1914, and it tells the story of some volunteer visitors to Southmead Military Hospital on one afternoon. They had previously visited a certain ward and found one of its occupants to be deaf and dumb, caused by the concussion of a shell, which blew the poor fellow some considerable height whilst at the front during the Great War. He escaped without any wounds, but both eardrums were destroyed, which apparently will leave him deaf for the remainder of his days. Like most of our Tommies, he is of a very retiring disposition, 
and did not like the visitors to know of his sad affliction. But during our last visit, a thought suddenly struck me, and I tapped out on the back of his hand in the Morse code alphabet the words, Can you read this? And was surprised when he replied to me in a similar manner, Yes. I was a telegraphist in India for years. We had quite an interesting conversation, and several of my friends also conversed with him similarly. In place of sadness, a ray of joy illuminated his face as he expressed his gratitude for our interest in him. He regained his speech, and this belief is shared by his wounded comrades, whose hearts go out in real pity to him. It is a pleasure to find how these brave wounded fellows who display the greatest patience in their sufferings endeavour to forget their sorrows and try to bring happiness to each other, typical of the comradeship exhibited in the British Army. Also on the ward, there were members of the Scottish and Irish regiments, the Cheshire, West Kent, Wiltshire among them, together with a gallant young Belgian who would tell you in his own tongue the battles which he took part in with his gallant comrades. He had suffered a shrapnel wound in one of his knees and a bullet wound in his ankle. But he was still hoping for a speedy recovery to help tighten the rope around the Kaiser's neck, in his own words. Just in. Clever boffins at Oxford have discovered that the swordfish has no natural predators to fear from. Except, of course, the penfish, which is supposed to be even mightier. Book of the Week. For this week's book, I heartily recommend The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid. It tells the story of an ageing and reclusive Hollywood movie icon called Evelyn Hugo, who is finally ready to tell the truth about her glamorous and scandalous life, and she chooses an unknown magazine reporter called Monique Grant. Her story starts in the 1950s, and as they go through the decades, it's perfectly obvious that something in her story is unfurling with tragic consequences. Here's a lovely story of Christmas cheer in Bristol, where there was a Christmas party at the British Sailors Society Broadkey for the crews of the ships in port and sailormen ashore. They were welcomed at the rest by Mr P.S. Bevan, the port missionary. During dinner, a message was received from Sidney S. Cosford, the chairman of the Bristol Committee. Heartiest Christmas greetings to all brave men of the Merchant Service assembled with you today. May 1941 bring victory to the Allied cause and a lasting peace. God bless you all. some more Christmas facts for you. Did you know that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer first appeared in 1939 when the Montgomery Ward department store asked one of its copywriters to create a Christmas story the store could give away as a promotional gimmick. The store had been giving away colouring books for years and decided to make its own to save money. 
and those circular Christmas wreaths that you see a lot at this time of year, well, they originated as a symbol of Christ. The holly represents the crown of thorns Jesus wore at his crucifixion, and the red berries symbolise the blood he shed. So when you see a wreath this season, you'll remember the reason for the season. I think you'll like this one. Nine days before Christmas in 1965, the two astronauts aboard Gemini 6 sent an odd report to Mission Control that they saw an unidentified flying object about to enter Earth's atmosphere, travelling in the polar orbit from north to south. They interrupted the tense report with the sound of jingle bells. As Wally Shearer played a small harmonica accompanied by Tom Stafford on a handful of small sleigh bells they had smuggled aboard. And here's another Santa-related gem for you. Newspaper publishers hate publishing phone numbers as the potential for a mistake is high. In 1955, Sears tried to put the number of one of their stores where children could call Santa Claus and tell him what they wanted for Christmas in the newspaper. However, the number printed was for NORAD, North American Aerospace Defence Command, their hotline. Thus, Santa Tracker began. NORAD still provides flight updates on the internet, TV news, and a special iPhone app each Christmas. Oh, 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 Merry Christmas! And now, this is the news from 1884. Catherine Reynolds, an eccentric-looking woman, was charged with disorderly behaviour in Gloucester Lane. The case was fully proved and the defendant admitted her guilt, telling the magistrates that the last time she was before them, she received only three months. This was, in her opinion, not enough, as she hoped they would now give her six months instead. That was your news from Bristol. January 1884. Now this is a lovely Christmas story from 1907. And the story itself centres on a house of a well-known musical comedy actress celebrated for her kindness and eccentricity, although her name was never actually mentioned in the article of the Daily Dispatch. This actress asked about a dozen men friends to dine at the unearthly hour of six o'clock. Among them were a couple of guardsmen detained in town on duty, three very affluent exchange brokers, a man high up in the foreign office, and many others. They turned up punctually at the hour named and found, to their surprise, that their charming hostess had invited 40 children, the poor of the neighbourhood, to a Christmas dinner and that her male guests, in the most immaculate evening dress, were expected to wait upon them. And these men entered heartily into the joke, all the more because the children took them as servants and treated them as such, calling waiter and ordering them about in the most free and easy way. The children were given a substantial meal, finishing up with cakes, sweets and oranges, and when they were dismissed at eight o'clock, the tired hostess and her, no less tired and hungry, male helpers sat down to a real dinner of their own. The men made up a collection for the children, who each went away a shilling richer than they came. 
and altogether it was, by all accounts, a very novel and successful gathering. And on Christmas Day in 1888, all the inmates in the Bedminster Union Workhouse were treated to a good dinner of roast beef, plum pudding and beer. And on the Christmas Eve, thanks to the generosity of a regular visitor called Mrs Anthony Gibbs of Charlton, which is now where the Filton Airfield is, each of the old men were presented with tobacco, a pipe, a handkerchief, a scarf and a card, and each of the old ladies were given tea, sugar, a lovely woolen scarf and a card. All the children received oranges, sweets and a card, and everyone was waited on by the staff, including the master and matron, Mr and Mrs J H Stone. a little Christmas fact for you. You probably already knew that the idea of Santa Claus came from Saint Nicholas, but the real saint wasn't a bearded man who wore a red suit. That all came much later. According to legend, the 4th century Christian bishop gave away his abundant inheritance to help the needy and rescued women from servitude. His name was Sinterklaas, in Dutch, which later morphed into Santa Claus. And another Santa fact for you. Our image of Santa Claus has some interesting origins. Early pictures of St Nicholas show him with a stern expression. Santa Claus originally appeared in a newspaper ad and Washington Irving is credited with creating Santa's flying sleigh in 1819. And cartoonist Thomas Nast began illustrating our current image of Santa in Harper's Weekly in 1863. Now here's an interesting Christmas story from 1941. It's about how an RAF man who was alleged after gate crashing into a private Christmas party and being allowed to stay repaid the kindness by stealing a piano accordion valued at £5. The case was heard at Lawford's Gate Police Court in Staple Hill, Bristol on the 6th of February 1941. Before the court was Thomas Rigby, who pleaded not guilty. The magistrates found the case proved and fined the defendant £1 with 25 shillings cost. Henry Sutton of Seymour Road, Staple Hill, said that on Christmas Day he went to his sister's house to a Christmas party, to which he took his accordion. About 10.30pm, two RAF men came into the party. I do not think they were invited because we held a conference as to whether we should eject them. We did not want any disturbance, so decided to let them stay. I left the party at 1.30am on Boxing Day morning and later returned to get my accordion, but it was missing. Mrs G Nicholson said that she did not know the men who came to the party and could find no one who invited them. They were allowed to stay and were given drinks. The defendant said that he was drunk and could not remember taking the accordion. The first he remembered about it was when he found it in his possession on his way back to Billets. He said that he and his friend, another RAF man, were invited to a party by a man in a public house. The other RAF man said that they were invited to the party and the following day went back to Staple Hill to try to find the house where the party had been in order to return the instrument. 
Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 12th of December, when on this day in 1915, US singer and film actor Frank Sinatra was born. That, of course, was the Morse code signal for SOS. But on the 12th of December in 1901, the first transatlantic radio signal, the Morse code letter for S, was successfully transmitted from Poldu in Cornwall to St. John's, Newfoundland, where Italian physicist and inventor Marconi was waiting. On the 14th of December in 1819, Alabama became the 22nd state of the USA. Also on the 14th of December in 1911, Eleanor Davis Colley became the first woman to become a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. On the 16th of December in 1982, the border between Spain and Gibraltar was partially reopened. The frontier had been closed since 1969 and reopened fully to everyone in 1985. And on the 16th of December, in 1653, Oliver Cromwell became Lord Protector of England. And in 1809, Napoleon I divorced his wife, Josephine. Also on the 16th of December, in 1980, US business executive and founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken, Harlan Saunders, passed away. A huge Christmas-laden thank you must go out to my voice artists today, Marcus KP, Henry Arnold and Simon Green from Bradley Stoke Radio and Joe Wilson from St Stephen's Drama Group in Sanwell, Bristol. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show and as always, I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook by using at BacktrackerUK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK, or you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. And I've also got some great news because I've launched some merchandise on trepublic.com. So if you look me up, you'll find a whole range of things with the Backtracker logo on it. Now, if you want to do something to really show your appreciation for the show, leave a rating wherever you listen. It all helps, you know. But if you didn't like the show, let's just part ways now. Remember, no harm, no foul. Let me end the show by saying to all you wonderful people out there, thank you for all your support. I have genuinely enjoyed making this show and I hope you've enjoyed listening. So, until next time, I wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas. Take care, guys. Look after each other. Ho, 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 ho. Merry Christmas.